It's Wednesday, October 20th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Mix and match COVID booster shots could be on their way soon. The FDA may be allowing Americans to switch to another shot when choosing a booster. Preliminary data shows that it is still safe and gives a huge boost to your protection, particularly if you have the Johnson & Johnson shot. The Pfizer vaccine boosted antibody levels by a factor of 35, and Moderna raised it 76-fold. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times, joins us for more on mix and match boosters. Next, the Haitian gang accused of kidnapping American missionaries goes by the name of 400 Maozo, and they have reportedly asked for $17 million, a ransom of $1 million per hostage. This group has been responsible for 80% of the kidnappings in the last few months. Miriam Berger, international news reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what to know. Finally, nearly 40% of state workers in California remain unvaccinated despite Governor Gavin Newsom's orders. The orders are to be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing, and state workers are lagging compared to the general public. The big hurdle comes soon as state offices begin to reopen and the testing infrastructure still needs to be completed. West Venteischer, state worker reporter at the Sacramento Bee, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Mixing and matching would reduce supply chain complexity quite a bit. And so the end result would be more boosters and more arms. And that matters a lot more than exactly which type of booster people get. Joining us now is Carl Zimmer, columnist at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Carl. Thanks for having me. Let's talk mix and match COVID booster shots. Uh, The FDA, it seems like they're going to be authorizing booster shots of uh, different vaccines from the one you might have originally gotten. You know, as a reminder, we have the Pfizer, the Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines out there right now. And this could help for a lot of people. I know people that had Johnson & Johnson might be looking for a different booster shot than the original one they had. But we're seeing some data out there that supports that this could be a good thing to do. So, Carl, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? So there have been a number of studies where, for one reason or another, people have switched from one of the COVID vaccines to another. It might have been that they were supposed to get two doses of AstraZeneca, and then, you know, there were concerns with young people. Maybe there was a small risk of blood clots. So in some countries, they switched to Pfizer. So these were opportunities to see, well, what happens? And as far as we can tell from these studies, There doesn't seem to be any serious safety issue. It's not like people react badly if you switch the vaccine on them. And it also looks like the production of antibodies works well. And that might be true not just for switching between your two primary doses, but it may be okay to switch to a booster dose. Yeah. And in the case with some of these uh, vaccines, you know, as you mentioned, ones that we were seeing in different countries, the platforms were different, right? So the AstraZeneca is a different platform than the mRNA ones that we have in Pfizer and Moderna. And um, they stimulate the immune system in different ways. So you kind of get the best of both worlds in that sense. Well, that's a possibility that scientists have been looking into actually for a number of years. They've been working on experimental vaccines for diseases like HIV. And what they found is that maybe by combining really different vaccines, you can actually get a better defense because, you know, there's some vaccines that are based on mRNA, like Pfizer and Moderna, a vaccine like Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca, they're based on something called an adenovirus, so a virus that delivers the viral protein to your cells. 
There are other ones as well. There are protein vaccines and so on. So there are a lot of opportunities potentially to combine these to our advantage. When we're looking at specifically the ones that we have here in the United States, have they done some of those studies already mixing and matching? I know, as I mentioned, Johnson & Johnson, when compared to the other two, maybe wasn't as effective. But I know that there have been some things where, uh, you know, show if, if you do mix and match, then you get a, a huge boost, really, into the effectiveness of the vaccines. So far, the National Institutes of Health have gotten some preliminary data. And got to stress, this is still preliminary. But what they did was they gave uh, people who had gotten you know, Moderna vaccine, a booster of Moderna or a booster of Pfizer, a booster of Johnson Johnson. And then the same was true for people who got Pfizer, who got Johnson Johnson for their initial shot. So they basically looked at all possible combinations. And so far, all they've looked at in terms of results are the antibodies that neutralize the coronavirus. That's really important, but it's not the whole story. Among those results, though, it looks as if if you've gotten a Johnson Johnson vaccine and you get a Johnson Johnson booster, that boosts your antibodies by a factor of four, which is good. But if you were to get a Moderna instead as your booster, that would increase them by 72 times. So wow. <laughs> big, big antibody difference. Yeah. Now, there are other parts of the immune system. There are immune cells called T cells, which are really important for sort of a long-term immunity to diseases. And Johnson Johnson looks to be pretty good when it comes to the T cells. So we shouldn't just cling to one set of preliminary results and say that that's the full truth of the matter. Right. I mean, there might be a case that those that have gotten the Pfizer and Moderna want to get that Johnson & Johnson just to boost up that side of things. You know, and obviously vice versa for those that got Johnson and Johnson might want to go the other way. You know, this is all very good news, obviously, to keep boosting the protection that we can get. And in the long term, it seems like there's going to be a lot more options. I, you know, there's still a lot of COVID-19 vaccines that are in clinical trials being developed. And we could have other people come on board and that could serve as boosters in different ways as well. That's right. At the New York Times we have a vaccine tracker where we keep track of all of the COVID vaccines that are in clinical trials. And there are over 100 of them currently in clinical trials and a bunch more that are being tested out on with animals. So there, there are a lot of potential new vaccines and they are different from the ones that are authorized. So it's possible that within a few months, there might be protein-based vaccines coming from companies like Sanofi or Novavax, and those will be new candidates for your next booster. And the ones that you just mentioned, um, you know, these uh, protein, viral protein ones, these are ones that contain viral proteins from the coronavirus itself, or are we still looking at other viruses that they use in, in the development of these? No, these are basically just pure protein. What you do is you get a, a gene from the coronavirus and you stick it into some microbe that then just churns out that coronavirus protein that you want. And then you purify that and then you get an injection of that. That's a very common way that we get vaccinated for uh, other diseases like influenza and so on. It's a very tried and true way of getting a vaccine. It's just, it's slower to make than mRNA vaccines. And so it's been lagging behind. But, you know, it could become a long-term serious contender. Carl Zimmer, columnist at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Gadget. 
gangs dominate uh, many parts of Port-au-Prince uh, and other parts of Haiti. Uh, the national police can't even operate in, uh, in many of these areas. Joining us now is Miriam Berger, international news reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Miriam. Thank you for having me. Wanted to get an update on this Haitian gang that is uh, accused of kidnapping American missionaries. I think in total, it's 17 people from an Ohio-based missionary group, 16 Americans and one Canadian. The group does include five children. We're hearing now that this Haitian gang is asking of a ransom of $1 million per hostage. So they're seeking $17 million total. Miriam, help us walk through some of this. What are we seeing? This happened over the weekend, right? So this happened on Saturday, and the news sort of started really trickling out more on Sunday. But basically, you know, this group of mainly American and then one Canadian national, this group of workers with the Christian Aid uh, Ministries, which is a organization based in Ohio, were driving back from a trip to an orphanage, and their vehicle was commandeered and they were abducted. And uh, we haven't heard from any of them since. This particular gang, the 400 Mawozo, I think it is, it's called, they've been responsible for quite a number of them. I think they said from June to September, they were responsible for 80% of abductions in Haiti. And, you know, we know all the other problems, the recent assassination of the president there, the poverty that's going on in there. So the, the kidnappings are becoming a lot more common. Saturday's abduction, you know, thrust Haiti into the center of international crisis, but for everyday Haitians, both rich and poor, kidnappings have become a really terrifying fact of life. And this gang, as you mentioned, is said to be responsible for a huge proportion of you know, 80% of recent kidnappings in Haiti. And that's in part because what they do is kidnap buses, bus loads of people or car loads of people. They also target churches and clergy who, you know, historically have been sort of a red line in Catholic majority Haiti. And so they really sort of unleashed this sort of you know, or part of unleashing this wave of kidnappings that's really just stoked terror for so many Haitians. And there have been ups and downs in kidnappings before, but experts have told uh, my colleagues at the Washington Post that this is the worst they've seen in years. Let's talk a little bit more about this gang specifically. You know, they do seem pretty brutal. They use rape and assassinations to maintain their grip there. As you mentioned, kidnapping people from cars and buses. And it's kind of hard to pin down their targets. They don't have any specific targets. They're just getting anybody that they can, uh, obviously, so that they can uh, put them up for ransom, it seems like. Well, you know, there's sort of a whole range of, of people who are getting caught up in, in the violence. And so, you know, on the one level, you have turf battles between rival gangs. And so some people are getting caught up in that. You have businesses that are being, um, you know, extorted. You have sort of everyday random acts of violence targeting, you know, people on their way to work, in their buses, et cetera, when they're at church. And, you know, there's also allegations that these, both 400 Mowozu and, uh, you know, other gangs in, in Haiti have various ties with, you know, politicians and uh, business leaders. And so, you know, sometimes they're doing the bidding of someone else or trying to, you know, protect their own gains. So there's lots of different levels of the violence. And that's what's so difficult is that this has really become so entrenched in all parts of life now. As I mentioned, they asked for $17 million in ransom. They obviously don't always get as much as they want. People often negotiate things down. Uh, I guess there was a situation in April where they kidnapped five priests and two nuns. How did that play out? You know, in the case in April, they were ultimately released. 
Some people are not. Some people are killed either because, you know, their family or friends can't get the money or because of violence they experience in captivity. Other people emerge quite traumatized. We obviously do not know what's happening right now with the group from Christian Aid Ministries. But the U.S. has a policy of not paying ransoms for, you know, American nationals held hostage. And that's been a, you know, pretty consistent uh, policy. And, you know, the, the thinking, the logic is, is that paying such a ransom would then, you know, encourage another group to do so, and especially a ransom of this size and money. So it's not clear where this is going, yeah. but U.S. and Haitian officials in State Department, FBI are on the, you know, working with uh, Haitian authorities to uh, try and locate and uh, free them. Miriam Berger, international news reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Among those, as you pointed out, 62%, that compares to a vaccination rate in the general population of 72%. So state workers are actually below the state average, despite these orders from Newsom. Joining us now is Wes Venteischer, state worker reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thanks for joining us, Wes. Thanks for having me, Oscar. We're seeing vaccine mandates uh, all across the country, really. And, uh, you know, when it comes and federal mandates, too. But when it comes to on the state level, state employees are really the purview of whatever particular state in California. We're starting to see some initial numbers roll in and we're seeing that nearly 40 percent of California state workers are unvaccinated despite these orders that are coming down. And, you know, we're getting numbers from different uh, state agencies and all it seems like it's still going to be a heavy lift before we get everybody vaccinated. So uh, Wes, walk us through some of this. What are we seeing? These numbers are for most of California state government. There's about 238,000 people total work for the state. These numbers represent about 213,000 of those. So a good bulk. Among those, as you pointed out, 62%, that compares to a vaccination rate in the general population of 72%. So state workers are actually below the state average despite these orders from Newsom. And so those orders are, um, they, they refer to them as kind of encouragement when they released this. I mean, Newsom issued this order July 26. At the time, they did call it the first Indonesian order of its kind, but it still allowed people to choose to either be tested or to get the vaccine. So it's a little bit less strict than some of the other orders out there. Yeah, and that's an important point, right? Not everybody's going to be losing jobs or anything like that. You know, they have these options, although they are heavily recommending everybody gets vaccinated. And we're going to get into that testing in just a moment because that's a whole other layer that complicates everything, right? For these state agencies themselves, for human resources, all that. But let's get uh, into uh, some numbers real quick because I know there's a breakdown with, you know, California Highway Patrol, the DMV. What are we seeing in those numbers? These are some of the largest state departments and They are law enforcement. Those are also some of the lower rates that I've been able to get at the department level. At the California Highway Patrol, with about 11,000 employees, has the lowest rate that I've seen so far from a department with about 52%. The Department of Motor Vehicles has 60%, and the prisons, as of today, are at 62%. That's the largest state department with about 66,000 employees. And a little bit higher at Caltrans, about 20,000 employees, and they're at 70%. So those are a few of the departments that we've been able to get specific numbers for, but we don't have numbers for a lot of the departments. 
So moving on now, as I mentioned, testing, right? So this is the other component of it. Uh, a lot of state offices are going to start reopening soon. And, you know, a lot of people are still doing, you know, working remotely, all that. There was already plans, actually, for people to have returned by now. But obviously, Delta variant and all sorts of other things that happened. So some of these offices are going to be reopening soon. And if you're unvaccinated or failed to disclose your vaccination status, testing is the other option. But talk about how this whole other layer complicates things. A lot of them are still uh, behind on setting up the way they're going to be doing all the testing. They're still waiting on materials for this. There's a lot yet to be done there. That's why these numbers came to be available. The State Human Resources Department has been collecting the vaccination numbers just so they can prepare to roll out this massive testing program across California state government. There's 166 total different departments, agencies, boards, commissions, all those kinds of things in California state government. So there's this big logistical operation that needs to happen. This was an initial step to get a sense of the load for testing. And now the state human resources department is kind of coordinating this process. They've got to 40 offices now, and it's just requires them to have the state is paying for the testing so they have to keep track of who all is unvaccinated and then test them once or twice a week and supervisors state supervisors are doing this so there's a staffing element there where they have to identify the staff train them get them set up to do this and then there's the testing supply stuff there's been a national shortage of the antigen tests these are the ones that go just a little way up the nostril and are a little bit less unpleasant than the PCR testing. So they're dealing with that too and trying to make all these pieces come together. Yeah, and they're going to be doing a combination of the antigen and the PCR testing depending on how many workers they have in each department, all that. You know, there's, uh, as I mentioned, this the whole other layer still co- yet to come. And we're seeing, you know, still a lot of objections to all of this. A lot of state unions have objected to these shot or test rules, as they call them. I mean, what are we seeing on that front? A few of the actually largest state unions have filed formal objections to these requirements. Newsom announced this stuff July 26th and then told the unions about it after that. They objected to that. Several of these unions, including SEIU Local 1000, which represents nearly 100,000 state employees. You have the Cal Fire Local 2881, which represents state firefighters, International Union of Operating Engineers, which represents maintenance workers. They all filed uh, formal complaints against that order saying that hey, if you're going to do this, you have to go through the regular negotiating process with us, talk about how this is going to be done. Behind that is a desire for a lot of these unions, for their members not to have to get vaccinated. They are continuing to object to it. The prison guards union is objecting to this in whole other avenues in court with the Newsom administration. That's a more complicated situation. But yeah, these unions have filed objections so far. A couple of these cases have been settled and the settlements have said, okay, Workers, you don't need to provide your vaccination status to us if you don't want to. But essentially, if you don't do that, we're going to treat you as unvaccinated and you still have to get tested. So in terms of the overall thing, it's pretty much the same situation. Wes Venteischer, state worker reporter at the Sacramento Bee. Thank you very much for joining us. Nice talking with you. Thanks. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this 
was your daily dive. 